There are lots of things a business needs to help it run efficiently. Document management, printing, IT support, digitization, data security and more. As a true managed service provider, Workflow Solutions can help with these and a wide range of other business needs. Saving time and money for businesses across the UK. Help your workflow with Workflow Solutions, the work from anywhere experts. Visit workflo-solutions.co.uk Good morning and welcome to the Go Radio Business Show with Sir Tom Hunter and Lord Willie Hockey. I'm Dal Martin, editor of The Herald and Herald on Sunday, and your host as we talk football and football, as well as sharing brilliant and free advice from the boardroom. We're also joined this morning by Michael Bertson, owner and boss of Bucks Bars. Don't forget, if you ever miss an episode, simply search for the Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey on your favourite podcast channel. And if you've a question for Tom and Willie, please email gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk. The Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey. So gents, let's start with good news for a change. Glasgow Rangers are in a European (coughs) final on Wednesday. If they win, it will mean both sides of the old firm in the Champions League group stages, each receiving a minimum £30 million windfall. So how much of an impact will that have on business and the profile of the city, Tom? Well, you're coming to me first. I, of I'm, course, I'm, it was I'm, too obvious to go to Willie. I'm really I interested. Need to say, that's really this. good news. <laughs> <laughs> the Reverend I Am Jolly will, will come on next, I think. Um, well, um, let's see up front. I don't know anything about football. I don't support either side, but I support Scotland. So I'm delighted they've got a Scottish um, team in the final. And just the feel-good factor for some parts of the city. And then releasing the animal spirits, Willie, of putting this feel-good factor back into the city of Glasgow. Over to you. Oh, yes, Willie. As the prospective new mayor, <laughs> will you be cheering the jers on? Eh, uh, no. <laughs> Moving in a, on. In a word. <laughs> No, but for all my friends and all my colleagues that are Rangers fans, I hope they have a nice trip. <laughs> uh, but it, it, as you did say, it is great for the coefficient. It's great, you know, for money coming into Scottish football. So remember, this is a business show, not a football show. <laughs> uh, and sticking to that, uh, I think that that can only be good. The good thing is, you barely get a parking space next week <laughs> during the week in Glasgow. <laughs> well, moving on, the Bank of England been slammed by its former chief economist for squandering the chance to tackle the cost of living crisis, saying that they failed to act quickly on in inflation, and that's exactly what you said, Willie. So should they have been listening to the show? Definitely, and I think we've been ahead of the curve for months and months and months. And I'll be honest with you, it wasn't, we, we're no rocket science. We were just kind of looking at the data, look what was happening, watching a wee bit of Bloomberg. So I, I don't know where Andrew Bailey has... I mean, really, it's like EMU management. He's been burying his head in the sand for months and months and months. And what happens now is, it's as if you know, we keep thinking it's going to go away. It's not going to go away until you tackle that problem. And now it's a big problem. They've got this dynamic now where they're damned if they do and they're damned if they don't. Right, so the experts would tell you you've got to lift interest rates, which will not be good for anybody at the moment in this perfect storm where everybody's cost. You know that's certainly going to not help the cost of living crisis. So, 
we need, we said it during the pandemic, we need some clever people to make some clever decisions over the next few weeks, not the next few months. So, Tom, the predictions are now that inflation will be above 10%. Can we really bank on Mr Bailey to sort out this mess? Yeah, well, I mean, you could read the papers, hopefully the Herald, and watch Bloomberg or do whatever you get your info from and you could be get yourself into a right state. Output was down in March. We've got inflation now getting predicted over 10%. We've got interest rates. There's definitely going to be a rise in June, another one in August. The recession word is being talked about. Stagflation, I haven't heard that word for many a year. And we've got a war in Europe. My goodness, that's the bad news. Here's the good news. There is not one person listening to this show, unless Andrew Bailey is and Rishi Sunak, who can do anything about these things. You, as a small business owner, you, as an entrepreneur, all you can do is take that info and say, what does it mean for my business? How do I serve my customer better? How do I make my business more efficient? Because these big things... I can't do a thing about it. Willie can't do a thing about it. There are people there who should be doing something about it and even they're not doing anything about it. But you can get yourself down in the dumps about this. But I would say, worry about the things you can sort. Don't worry about the things you have no chance of doing anything about. Willie? Yeah, I, I think that uh, unfortunately, the indicators at the moment that there's going to be more ingredients that are not going to help the perfect storm. I mean, today, you know, we're hearing about Finland and Sweden and the worry and Putin threatening the world. And this will not help at all. And it certainly, I know we're going to talk about it, it certainly won't help the markets. And what people need to realise that are listening to this, the markets affects everyone. Whether you're in the markets or not in the markets, it has a knock-on effect on investment and it has a knock-on effect on business. But I would say that it looks like Andrew Bailey has been caught sleeping at the wheel and it looks like it's, the baton's been passed to Richie Sunak to try and fix it. I think the Bank of England here must be held accountable for, for the lack of you know movement over the last few months. Well, you talked about the stocks and uh, US tech stocks have plummeted by 1.6 trillion this year. So that's shares in Facebook owner Meta, Netflix, Amazon, Google parent Alphabet have collapsed. Also fears about Microsoft, Tesla and Apple running out of steam. Tom, should we be worried or is it a long overdue correction in the market? I'm afraid this is just indicative of the boom-bust nature of capitalism. And the clever people who can look at these markets, and Willie and I, Willie and I have been through a few recessions, <laughs> more than I care to remember. And what happened was, coming out of the last financial crisis, um, governments around the world wanted to go for quantitative easing, and money was cheap. And therefore, the stock market said, we're going to reward companies who are growing. So we're going to value growth over profits. And there's this term in the American vernacular called blitz scaling, which just meant, you know, people like Peloton, like Netflix, like Uber were just growing at any cost. And for a while, that 
was valued, especially on the US stock market. Well, guess what? All good things come to an end. And um, as you say, the fangs, you know, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, Google. But as ever, there's good and there's bad in there. So when the bubble bursts, and believe you me, the bubble has burst, it's hard to tell what's temporary and what's permanent. I go back to the tried, old tested that cash flow is king. And cash flow in some of the companies which I'm still buying is Apple, is Microsoft, is Alphabet. So they do have cash flow. Netflix, Peloton, Zoom don't have positive cash flow and they're getting slaughtered, and rightly so. And funds like SoftBank, it's just post a quarter loss of $27 billion. Tiger Fund, $17 billion. But the other side of the coin is during last year, there was 1,400 venture capital private equity funds raised $207 billion of fresh powder, it's called. That's just cash to you and me. So they've got to put it somewhere. So, as ever, should we be worried about it? Well, yeah, as Willie said, even if you don't think you're in the stock market, you probably are because your pension fund will be invested in the stock market. But it comes back to me, we're now in something I understand, which is the fundamentals of a business. Does it have positive cash flow? What does it look like going forward? And cash is now more valuable than growth. Willie? My big concern about the markets, and especially when we talk about FANG, the way that very clever people know how to manipulate social media now to prop values behind companies. We have waxed lyrically over the last few weeks about how we admire Elon Musk. He's the greatest example of the good and the bad of how you use social media. So here is a guy who sets a company up nine years ago who very quickly becomes, a, on, on paper, the richest guy in the world, right? Here is a guy who made a statement that killed the value of his company, made another statement that increased the value of his company, bought Bitcoin to try and move it. I mean, this is bonkers, right? And this there will be an adjustment, Right, there is, there is businesses out there that got valuations that are off the scale that are absolutely not correct, right? Bitcoin in the last two weeks has dropped from $60,000, right, to thirty. Imagine you need your money in any assets. Do you get any right? Bitcoin, Willie? None, no, none. I, I don't have none. one. none. And, and I wouldn't, Bitcoin. so I wouldn't invest in anything that is not asset-backed. Right, but whereas gold has went over two thousand dollars an ounce, so you think, okay, there's a safe haven. But for me, I hate to say it, but when the crash comes, right, people are going to have to look at social media and the part that it played in it, and how clever people are manipulating it. I'll never forget the scene, and I think it was in the Big Short, where they went into the data companies that fed into Wall Street. And the big companies were paying millions to get it one millisecond before the rest. And this is what's happening at the moment. And I think we have to get a hold of this before there is an amazing crash. Warren, Warren Buffett's got a great quote which says, when the tide goes out, we see who's been swimming with no trunks on. Mm -hmm. <laughs> great quote. Yeah. So are there any opportunities in this? 
there's always opportunities in a crisis, but until we know the size of the crisis, then people will not know where to go. You know, nimble entrepreneurs will move and they will see things, you know, but what we have at the moment is, is there's, there's a... I think there's a huge state of paralysis coming around the corner because people will not know where to move. There'll be interest rates going up here. You know, I, I think the next thing will be house prices, right? So I mm. think the perfect storm now added to what we're talking about, what's happening in Europe. Um, there's not a lot of building blocks. You no, know, we we're kind of we're on here to try and help business proper, but you have to see it as it is, right? There's there's a lot of things at the moment that's going to make it very difficult, especially for big business. Always opportunities, Donald. Some of the best businesses are born out of adversity because the entrepreneurial mindset looks to, to knock down the challenges in front of them and get on with it. And that's what I'm saying. You could get very depressed, but worry about the things you can affect. There's nobody listening to this show can affect the things we talked about. They can affect what happens in your business, though. With all the difficulties we face, of course, we had the Queen's speech where we out, they outlined the UK government's plans for forthcoming legislation. So, were you impressed with what was being suggested, <laughs> Willie? There was there was, there was uh, nothing in it that had me jumping up and down. Right, I think it was very bland. Yeah, there was you know there was hoping people were hoping there would be more in it about you know what we're going to do. And it's funny to be fair, this should not be in the Queen's speech, right? Because obviously <laughs> you can't challenge it. This should be coming from the Prime Minister. But what he wants to do is get the Queen's speech over and then leak out. You know, oh no, there's going to be a big announcement next week. Then you get Michael Gove on the TV the following day telling you, you know, no, don't oh, don't read too much into that. There's not going. To, and then two days later, we'll get it leaked that Richard Sunak's going to drop the income tax rate. So I, I think that. Uh, People shouldn't jump up and down whatever. If you, you heard something that you're really pleased about in a Queen's speech, it's probably not going to happen anyway. Well, I, I know this is a business show, but I've got to ask you a political question. Why did the Tories put up Jacob Rees-Mogg as a spokesperson? I think because it was such a poison chalice that everybody <laughs> else ran away from it. And I, I've got to say, it is a business show, but I'll, I'll tell you, there is no doubt what the Tories must be doing at the moment is in a bunker trying to work out how this crisis does not bring down the government. Well, one of the plans that's been suggested is that they get rid of 90,000 civil servant jobs. Of course, that could be about making us more efficient, uh, saving something like 3.6 billion. A good move, or is that just going to add more misery? Well, if they're taking them all out of the, the procurement line, I think it'll be a good thing. <laughs> right? And maybe some of the barriers may be gone, but Again, this will just be someone thought of a number. You know what can we do? And this is my my problem with big government decisions, especially around you know redundancies like that. You know they'll tell you we'll try and find other things. How can you find ninety thousand things? You know for other people to do. I think that there's got to be something behind that announcement, and I'm waiting to see what the next indicator is. <laughs> well, and and part of our submission to Scotland's ten year economic plan. We asked, any economic plan has got to include the public sector, which was woefully missing from it. Because we looked at a country like Denmark, which has got very similar demographics to Scotland, similar population size, economy, etc. And the Danish public sector is far more productive than the Scottish public sector. Now, it is a nippy thistle to grasp. Now, Tom, I, you should add, and much smaller in proportion. 
Yes, no, yes. that's what I mean. It's, it's smaller, more productive. Yes. Um, now, I actually think it's brave of Westminster to have grabbed the thistle, even though it's down south, because um, they've gone first. Because this is not an easy thing to do, really. You've got strong unions, you've got strong vested interests, but, and I come back to my central point in all this, as a taxpayer, as a Scottish taxpayer, it is me and Willie and you, Donald, and the listener who is paying for the over-bloated public sector. And in Scotland, when a public sector is bigger than a private sector, that cannot continue. Because how do we fund the deficit? It just cannot continue. So if you ask the person in the street, I don't think they've got this link between, oh, no, that's a shame, don't, don't pay off the civil servants, but it's you that's paying for it. So surely... Surely every taxpayer would want a more efficient public sector. Willie, do you really see that happening in Scotland where the SNP tackling the public sector and trying to reduce staff? Because their track record has basically been no compulsory redundancies. Basically, you've almost got a job for life. They might not fill vacancies. And of course, now they've got ScotRail as well. For the last time, they basically had to settle and it's, we've got a summer of discontent with a government that tends to settle all the time. I, w- I would have to say, Donald, and I'm talking about going way back to the start of the devolved parliament here, I haven't seen anything from any political party who are running the administration that has wowed me. And I haven't seen anything progressive. I haven't seen anything radical. And trust me, with the way things are going at the moment, I'm talking about Scotland wide here, we're going to have to be radical in order to weather the storm. Tom, what should we do if we have to be radical? What's the first thing you would want to see? (laughs) Well, we've talked about it in this show many times and um, we've actually got meetings with the new head of the Scottish Civil Service next week, Willie, JP. What we're trying to say is, look, make policy in conjunction with the people that you're writing the policy for. (laughs) It sounds simple, Donald, but it's an amazing fact that policy writers on many occasions don't even speak to the people they're writing the policy to. They're doing it to them, not with them. Now, that one single change sounds simple and I think it would make such a difference. So don't write business policy without having business in the room with you. I mean, that's, that's, that's taken a while for us to get there. Now, Kate Forbes did listen, to be fair, but it, we've got to keep that. And every single policy that's written in Scotland, I would make it against the law, punishable by, I don't know, going to Seville at the weekend or something, um, to actually say, if you're writing policy, which is so important, you need to have your customer sitting alongside you. Really? Yeah, and we've said that, you know, over and over again. Certainly, of the things that we could have done, I wouldn't have been running to nationalise the rail, right? And let's see how that works out, right? And it may be, to be fair, it might be the last thing that's ever nationalised. But (laughs) if I would say to the First Minister, and it's okay saying that we're hands are tied, we can't do anything because London said this or London said that, she would be a hero if her and her cabinet working along, as Tom says, with the customer, that they can come up with something that can help people get through this one, the next winter and then the next year. And people there would appreciate, you know, what's what. Seeing these times, think what it'd be like, I think Tom was making this point, 
if we had fiscal autonomy in Scotland, right? I don't think we'd be able to pay our bills, right? But at least felt, then you'd know, you'd actually know what the situation was. So to answer your question, if the Scottish government, rather than just saying it's because of the UK we can't do this, if someone comes up with a wise idea that we can follow and it makes a difference, then people might think that devolution was all worthwhile. Well, thankfully, we'll be moving away from politics and back on yes. business after the break when we'll be talking to Michael Bergson, owner of Box Bars. Don't forget, if you want to join the boardroom, you can put your questions to Tom and Willie by emailing gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk and if you ever miss an episode, simply subscribe to the Go Radio Business Show podcast. The Go Radio Business Show with Workflow Solutions. Helping you with a wide range of business needs. Go Radio. There are lots of things a business needs to help it run efficiently. Document management, printing, IT support, digitization, data security and more. As a true managed service provider, Workflow Solutions can help with these and a wide range of other business needs. Saving time and money for businesses across the UK. Help your workflow with Workflow Solutions, the work from anywhere experts. Visit workflo-solutions.co.uk. The Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey. Welcome back. As in the latest of our brilliant series on Great Scots, we tell the story of Glen Gordon. William Grant was born in Dufftown and Moray in 1839, where he worked as a shoemaker in his youth before becoming a bookkeeper at Mortlach Distillery. For 20 years, he saved until he had enough money to buy a plot of land, and in 1886, brick by brick, Grant and his nine children began construction of their own Glenfirich Distillery. A year later, on Christmas Day, 1887, they produced their first drop of spirit. Business boomed, and just five years later, the Grant family built a second distillery the Balveni, and in 1898, the two distilleries began blending their whiskies. Grant's whisky was born. William's son-in-law, Charles Gordon, became the company's first salesman, and in 1909, he spent a year taking Grant's whisky to Australia and the Far East, paving the way for William Grant & Sons to become a global export business. A new law passed in 1915, demanding the minimum maturation period for Scotch whisky to be two years. While this led to the ruin of many a Scotch whisky distillery, William Grant had kept a supply of aging whisky in stock, and he was able to ensure continued production. Similarly, despite prohibition in the USA during the 1920s, Grant's continued production in preparation for prohibition's eventual repeal which came in 1933. William Grant died in 1923, but by now the family business was well established. By the 1950s, WM Grant & Sons had a plentiful supply of malt whisky, but what they did not have was a grain distillery of their own. When their conservative supplier refused to provide them with grain unless they pulled out of a television advertising campaign, the company decided things had to change. And in 1963, they opened the largest grain distillery in the world, in Garvin, putting the entire whisky production process in the hands of the company. That same year, Alexander Grant Gordon launched the world's first single malt. It remained the number one malt whisky in the world for over 50 years. Today, William Grant & Sons is still a family-owned business and is now run by Glenn Gordon, the great-great-grandson of William Grant. The company is the third largest producer of Scotch whisky, shipping about 7.6 million cases every year. 
So it should come as little surprise that the Gordon family are today the richest family in Scotland, with an estimated net worth of £2.8 billion. That's some success story, isn't it, Tom? <laughs> I love this story, and I'm, I'm friends with um, Grant Gordon, one of the um, descendants, and I had the great privilege. He took me down to Girvan, and um, what many people won't know, that sitting in Girvan are these huge warehouses and um, you can't see them from the road, Willie. And they're they're all they're, for obvious reasons. They've got a lot of security. Um, but right from the floor to the rafters are just casks of amber nectar. And every day it gets a wee bit more valuable. Now I wish I could remember how many bottles would be in those casks, but it's in the tens of millions <laughs> sitting in Girvan. And also in, in Girvan is they make Hendrix Gin because they own that brand as well. Um, but it's an amazing family story, still family run today. And, and I asked Grant about bringing on members of the family, you know. So how do you, do you, do you just get there by birthright? And he said, oh no, um, we've all got to prove our worth to get into the family business, which I thought was fascinating, Willie. I think um, two interesting things about the story, which is an amazing story. Um, one is when legislation changed in 1915, it could have changed, it changed things for loads of people and they were very, very fortunate that they had stored, you know, a lot of the stuff that they'd already made. But I think the most interesting part of the story is, is that if we believe it, that, you know, from 1929 to 1933, they were just storing it all to prohibition was over. <laughs> I wonder where all that whiskey came from that people were drinking in America. But, but what an amazing story. Amazing. I'll ask them, Willie, I'll ask them. <laughs> we're now joined by Michael Bergson, owner and boss of Thundercat Pub and Diner and three box bars in West Regent Street, Trongate and Mount Florida. Welcome to the show, Michael. Thanks for having me. Oh, delighted to have you here. You've had quite an interesting and impressive career in the hospitality trade. When did you first get involved and what were the early days like? Well, the first, the first job I ever had was in my dad's local in the old ship bank in the salt market. And, oh, a uh, tough school, was it? It was, it was the best apprenticeship you could ever imagine, working for Frank and Janice down there, you know, and just a brilliant family business and all the fundamentals of hospitality. Know your regulars, know what they drink, you know, respect them. If You know, just everything about it. I've just, you know, never, it's like Frank always said to me, never refuse someone that asks to shake your hand. I remember one time a wee man walked in and he came in and with all due respect, he was quite dirty or whatever. I don't know if he was homeless or whatever. And he went to shake my hand. I said, listen, you're okay. And Frank pulled me aside and he went, never refuse an outstretched wow. hand. Yeah. Ever. What a piece of advice. Your it, yeah. yeah, your customers mm, go yeah. to shake your hand, doesn't matter who it is, yeah, shake their hand. Right. You know? But maybe not in the COVID era. But no. <laughs> apart from that. Nicola would lock you up for that. Yeah. I know, you might end up in jail doing that. <laughs> if, if you had come to the ship bank, you want to shake by the neck. <laughs> <laughs> Best pub. Best pub. Still love the place. Well, uh, talking of COVID, you came to some prominence uh, over social media, you weren't too happy with the pandemic restrictions in Scotland. Well, look, here's the thing, right? I totally understood the first lockdown. You know, this horrible disease is coming over. We saw all the videos of people dropping dead in the streets of China and all that kind of stuff. And you heard the horror stories. And, you know, 
I, you know, I'm not a COVID denier by any means. Got two friends that were very, very ill with it, extremely ill with it. But what I found was when the restrictions originally came in and we started opening up and then lots of silly ones came back in, you know, all of a sudden we went from eat out to help out, let's get the economy going. And the the, the one that I wasn't happy about was um, a background music ban in Scotland. Aye. I just thought, this is ridiculous. Why are you... And I just opened, you know, we just opened Thundercat. You know, we thought, let's... We had a place, Soho in Miller Street. Let's refurb that during the pandemic. You know, we literally did it ourselves, me and my dad, painting the floors or whatever. Um, my dad will kill me for that. He did most of it. But whatever. <laughs> my dad and the team, let's you just You were supervising, Michael. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, a big feature of that was the music, you know, because I wanted to create a vibrant environment. People weren't going to be going to nightclubs for a while. And all of a sudden this comes in background music band. So I put out a wee post and I, 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 it was just a question. I, I, I posted a picture of a headline saying that the Scottish government were thinking of banning background music. I put that, or I said, do you think this is going too far? And I got an onslaught of abuse. Of about, abuse? Yeah, about 80% of people were saying, what are you doing even questioning these things? Because people were so terrified. You know, the First Minister's trying to do her best job. How dare you criticise it? About 80%, 20% of people said, no, I think this is going too far. So I had to kind of explain it. So I made a wee video. And I was saying, look, I'm just asking the question. I'm not talking about going in and having heavy metal music blasting full blast and you can't hear anything, loads of people screaming and jumping about on a dance floor. I'm talking about when you're sitting in a restaurant, there's a wee bit of background music or in a cafe or whatever at that level you know, what's the problem? And if you can't even ask questions, what's the point, you know? So from then on, I started questioning the odd restriction that came out and 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 it kind of, I decided to start posting it on LinkedIn and got a bit of a response and it kind of snowballed from there. And then you get stuck in this rut where you start, people are asking you to, <laughs> what do you think of this and what do you think of that? So you start posting another thing and then you think, so I've kind of, I've retired from that. Oh, don't, don't, don't <laughs> retire. One of the things we talk about in this show is policy being written in a vacuum yeah. and listen to the people it's affecting. So my whole thing during COVID was with the government, listen to business. Don't just come out with somebody in a dark room saying, oh, no music. You know, it, at least then you can explain your thinking yeah. and they can explain they're thinking, yep. and you might come to something, a better policy decision. Well, it's funny you should mention that because there ended up, we, myself and another couple of operators got involved with doing an experiment with an acousticologist, which is to do with the science <laughs> An acousticologist, that's a good word for a Sunday morning. Yeah, eh? acousticologist, the science <laughs> of sound. And this acousticologist, just, she came in and she, she actually sent a document to the Scottish government and said, do you know that actually putting music off in a room full of people makes them talk louder. This is science. Right. And it'll also, science. it'll also, because they I start trying to talk over each it. other. Follow the and science. This, this, <laughs> the science means they will also, if you're, they're in a quiet restaurant, they'll lean in and it'll, it's counterproductive. She said, we've actually done loads of experiments on this. Here it is. The government ignored it. Right. <laughs> ignore the science. Is so, that a headline? Yeah, so oh, right, they ignored okay. it. And then uh, we were involved in the... So this woman came up and she said, right, I'm going to do these experiments in bars in Scotland and say, here's experiments conducted in bars in Scotland. There's your science. Yeah. This is a bad policy. And I think it took them three months to re 
to reverse it. They just still sat on it for so, at least so, a couple of months. Michael, that, that, so at least that you had an impact and yes, people were listening. You had an you impact. In, in, involved. Yeah. You know, you got people engaged. You've worked for some of the most colourful characters That's in the hospitality amazing, yes. industry. <laughs> Give us a wee quick summary of the people you've worked for and the nuances of all of them. <laughs> well, you know, there's three operators that I really look up to in, in the industry and uh, for various reasons, and I, I've had the privilege of working for all three of them, and that's Glasgow-based independent operators. So the first one I sort of worked for was Mario at DiMaggio's group. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he's a trained accountant, Mario, and you can tell. You know, I mean, he's got a great, great business. He used to, I remember one time I'd sent, we'd had to, I, had, I was working in City Centre or something like that, and someone, he said to me, eh, he phoned me up and he says, Mikey, eh, West End need a keg of, keg of beer sent. So I sent my assistant manager over in a car, Hakan, Turkish guy, and I can remember on Monday, Mario used to pour through all the petty cash receipts and said to Hakan, there's some petrol money, go take this keg to West End. He phoned me up and he's like, Mikey, when did Hakan buy his Ferrari? <laughs> I said, why? He says, you're giving him a tenner for petrol to go over there on top of his hourly rate now. And then he started going on about <laughs> the price of petrol, how much you get to the mile, the distance between city centre and the, even considering and how much I'd overspent. That's Mario. So he's like in the detail. Computer. In the detail, but... Actually, I'm, I'm, I say that in jest, but I learned so much from him. Like, looking at a restaurant operation can be quite overwhelming, but his way of looking at it was the same as the way he looked at the accounts. If you take care of all the final wee details, the big picture comes together. So that's what I learned from him. And I worked for Stefan King, right. uh, and um, I worked for him twice. And the, the thing that really was a privilege to see with him was I got, he's got a very different business in the sense he has a huge head office in infrastructure where it's not just the operational side of it, but the shop fitters and the designers. And, you know, when I went back to work for him um, to help launch the Corinthian when it was um, turning into a casino, got to work quite closely with those designers, a guy called Jim Hamilton, absolute genius of a man Jim's a good pal of mine he, and oh, he is a genius he's, he's brilliant and I got to get you know working with him and, and the construction guys was a huge part of when I went back to my business I now you know we do our own designing and shop fitting not to Jim Hamilton's standard but <laughs> um, you know that that's the kind of thing there so I, I really got to learn that and then you had uh, the big man himself the governor James Mortimer the governor <laughs> Right. he'll be on the phone to me as soon as I get out of here and he'll be saying hey, do you enjoy that and I say aye and he'll go aye I tell them and put you on you know? <laughs> <laughs> I'll be down him. I phone hockey says get big Michael on but, and by the way he gets two tickets for Seville <laughs> <laughs> but James was um, probably out of all them the most influential in my career purely because it wasn't just him um, the main thing I learned from James he's just a force of nature that will not take no for an answer. So whatever tickets he's asked you for, Willie, <laughs> you better, give you better them. get them. But it was just, he just had this relentlessness about him. You know, I remember when we were, when I worked for him doing one up in 29, and I can remember a construction company just saying to him, you know, this lift shaft you want, it's utterly impossible. You're never going to do it. Suffice to say the lift was fitted. <laughs> A month later, <laughs> just didn't take no for an answer, you know. And it, it could give me a million examples like that. Yeah. And he was the one that really taught me to 
um, go and look at other venues, look look abroad, look at London, look at New York, go and inspect places. I mean, if any of you have ever been with them abroad, just runs into restaurants with a camera like yep. like some kind of restaurant commando taking pictures of everything. <laughs> I'll tell you a funny story about that. I took him to Florida and we did this new big spank, brand new Four Seasons Hotel and he's away and this is the days of the video camera. And he's went in the front door and he's in for 10 minutes and we can see this big banquet suite that's got an outside wall to where we are. And you just seen the two fire doors bursting open and a security guy pushed him <laughs> in his backside. <laughs> <laughs> he was mean, videoing this guy. That's what he would do, just Aye. run into kitchens yeah. and start taking pictures of all the equipment mid-service. <laughs> that's the girl we want. And you're like, my God, yeah. this is just... Yeah. And he has this aura about him that yeah. people just don't want... You know, he looks very official and all that. But learned so much from him. Yeah. And not just that, but the people I met through him, lots yeah. of great entrepreneurs. The entrepreneurial exchange used to do a lot of meetings and events there. The people I met and the the the, the diamonds of advice I got working for him were yeah. absolutely phenomenal. And it, it's funny, you know, obviously, business show putting out different messages there. I would imagine the picture you've painted of Mario and James... Here's two opposites, right? Two completely who doesn't care about the small yeah. detail. It's all about the big detail. Listen, and both of them successful. Both of them successful, but all three of those guys I mentioned have yeah. one thing in common, yeah. and that's whatever their vision is, whether it's Stefan with his big company or whatever that he wants to run a hundred bars, or Mario with all the details, yeah. or James with you know his venues are an extension of himself, and then he does his business deals and that kind of thing. They are relentless in pursuit of their vision. And, you know, you really need to get on board with it. Where, you you know, when they ask you for something, you you deliver it. And that's the way you got around. I mean, made lots of mistakes with all of them. But the advice I would say to people out in business there, if you've got a big boss like that, if they point out that you've made a mistake or done something wrong once, make sure they don't have to speak to you about it again. So tell us the story of why you decided to make the, this quantum and just say, I'm going to go and do it myself. Well, I, I kind of, to be honest, I was... Um, the other thing I didn't mention was I worked at Tiger Tiger just before I worked for James. It was a big London company. And I can always remember there was a there was a private equity buyout, right? And I used to have these bosses I looked up to and I had a kind of clear idea in my head of being able to, you know, work my way up onto the board or with them or another company. And uh, I kind of looked up to the board members and then there was an equity buyout and all these guys that I looked up to just got sacked and all these new people came in. I thought, this is quite superficial. I don't like this. I'd rather work for myself. And I read a book. It was first first wee book I read, Millionaire Upgrade. All right, okay. Great wee book. There was a bit that resonated with me inside that said, you know, it says you have this feeling in your gut that you want to do your own business. You can't, and if you can't get that out, you need to you need to go for it. You know, you just have this fire inside you where you have to do it. And some people aren't like that. Some yeah. people, you know, want to work for companies and, you know, they might make a lot more money than me, uh, but I just wanted to do it for myself. Well, we're always plugging books, so there's one for any budding yeah. entrepreneurs out there, Millionaire Upgrade. Yes, yes yeah. a cracker. It's a cracker. So, to, so tell us about the businesses and why you set up those particular ones. Well, I'll tell you this first, uh, and I think there's probably a message in it. The first restaurant I had, I just wanted an independent restaurant and I set my goals. I just want my own place. And it was Miller Street, and um, it was a basement site, so it reminded me of the bars I'd seen in Soho in London and New York. And I said, I'll call it Soho, and then what kind of food will I do? Uh, I'll do that food because I know how to do Italian, and I did, you know, pizzeria, and um, I know how that kind of kitchen works, and I've got a good understanding of that. It was in the middle of the credit crunch. And I set myself up to do one venue, and in hindsight, that 
that's all it was ever going to be. So, you know, we did little Soho, but it was a kind of offshoot to it that I opened up in Jordan Hill. But then I decided I wanted to take something that was a vision of, you know, before I started the shop fit, a very, very clear vision of the kind of place I would want to go. And um, I was fascinated, you spend a lot of time in America, and I was fascinated with a lot of the bars. Now, I, I can paint a picture of various different kind of venues. So if I tell, to, tell you Italian trattoria, classic Italian restaurant, you've got a very clear picture in your head. Or if I say to you a steak restaurant, you've got a very clear picture in your head. But you know these bars you see in America that have got the neon lights and, you know, the kind of place you get a shot at the bar, people are sitting at the bar, you get the big red leather booths, simple food done really well, independently owned. There's not a lot of them cutting about in the UK in that style at the time. Nowhere like that that had that kind of rock and roll music playing in the background. I'm not talking about heavy metal, I'm talking about 50s spirit rock and roll. I was thinking about, I had the, the idea, the vibe of the place in my, in my head at the time. And then I was thinking about what kind of food am I going to do here? And everyone was doing steaks, burgers, smoked meats at the time. And then me and my wife got stuck in America and we we, we, we ended up um, trying fried chicken. I went, why can't you get fried chicken like this? I love it. In Scotland, that was it. And and what's the name of that one? Buck's Bar. Buck's Bar. So we now have three of them. So right. that's really, really taken off and, and we're going to do whereabouts more. whereabouts are they? So we've got Buck's Bar. The first one we opened was West Regent Street. Um, and then we opened we opened that in 2016, and then uh, we opened up um, Trongate, uh, 2019, and we've just opened one in Mount Florida. So, Michael, let me ask you this: If there was, and there will be, a young Michael working for you today, what is he or she going to say about you? Because I think you're going to join the greats of Stefan, Mario, and James. You reckon? <laughs> I think so. So what what is a young person going to learn from you? That's a very good question. I mean, I can I can sort of answer that in a way because I've got two people that have been working for me. So you've, now, you've marked them out? Well, yeah. I mean, my, my exec chef, I first worked with her when she was 19. I worked with her at 29. Wow. And my... Um, my Head of operations, Ashley. She's worked with me since 2011. She started as a a, a manager of a 50 seater restaurant, and Simone started with me just as she turned 18 again about 10 years ago. So I think one of the things that they'll learn from me, I think, which I I learned from my my guys, is what I would call extreme ownership of your business. Right. When you're running a business for someone else, treat it as if it's your own. And I think that comes across in everything that I used to do when I was a manager. I always treated the business like I was my own, and that's what I expect from from mine as well. Many staff do you have today, Michael? We have 140. Wow. Oh. Yeah. And is that not feel daunting? You know, it's been you know you obviously you've 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 done your own thing a wee bit. I'd call living yeah. life for an entrepreneur. How how do you find it's okay to sleep at night knowing you've got yeah, 140 yeah, hours to feed? Yeah, and, and that's for for two reasons is you know, one I've I've managed big teams, you know, yeah. I think when we were at twenty nine we had numbers bigger than that because yeah. I looked after one up and stuff as well. Um but uh, the other thing is the team I've got around me are just I can rely on them so much, you know, and I think that's that's the main thing in teamwork, isn't it? Total trust. Yeah. But And do you think, Michael, that it's a great old question of nature and nurture do you think what what you feel in your gut 
and what you see in others can be taught or is it just there? I think that that feeling in your gut that you want to work for yourself <laughs> is there. And I think there's a lot more that can be taught, but I think a lot of people just don't enjoy it, you know. And I know someone that had two really successful bars and sold them. And I said, what you do? And then went and got a job. Sold out and he went, happiness is everything. I wasn't happy. <laughs> so what have you learned is the key difference from owning your own, running your own places to working for other people? What's been the hardest bit for you? Um, obviously, from my perspective, you know, we had a real tough few years where the money wasn't there. Um, and that, that that's me just being honest. You know, I went from, you know, <laughs> designing and helping fit out bars all the top of kitchen equipment to getting second-hand bits of equipment and having zero in the bank. And Or, you know, I remember I had to borrow 100 quid off my dad for the, the till float the day we opened Soho. <laughs> and to be honest, you know, it that's was robbing... That's a education. Yeah, yeah. We were, we were robbing Peter to pay Paul for, honestly, for the first five, six years constantly in debt that was the bit that I found really hard to manage you know yeah. let, me, let me ask you this obviously in you know entrepreneurial terms a wee bit late to the game do you do you regret that you didn't jump sooner and do your own thing or do you think that the experience you got there was invaluable no actually see just to clarify I opened my business in 2008 and the debt was becoming impossible to manage it was just we opened up in the credit crunch and we were just we owed so much to HMRC and PAYE that you know we were at risk of going down so out of the blue I got offered to go back on a kind of almost as director of the Corinthian club while I had my own business and I had to do that to um, get myself out of there and actually that was the time that I went back and worked with those designers and the guys in the construction side and it was almost like that was part of my development that was yeah. missing. Right. Wow. So almost, you know, looking back on it, I'm not saying that I didn't learn everything about everything else, but I really, that was part of me that was missing. How do you, and don't get me wrong, James is brilliant at all that stuff, but yeah. I walked into 29 at a stage when I wasn't working closely with those guys, James was, right. and I was taking care of other things, but this was like really getting, see them alongside, have meetings with them, watch them work. Another great example of an adversity, right? Is that you know what I mean? So yeah. it's, it's phenomenal. Yeah. So, finally, Michael, what's your ambition? Are you happy where you are now, or do you see a whole network of bucks bars? Oh yeah, we're looking at the next city. We were actually about to open a fourth one, and it fell through. Uh, we it was under offer, and you know the guy, the guy um, just pulled out at the very last minute. That's th things like that happen. Yeah. Um, um, and so we were ready to do our fourth big bucks bar and it was quite a big unit uh, so now we're, we're just plugging ahead and we'll see what else but I'm looking at other cities now I'd like I'd look at Edinburgh I'd look at Dundee I'd look down south so I'd like to see initially see if we can get it up to three or four cities So Michael just to finish because I think you're the kind of perfect guest I think this is what Willie envisaged when he set up the show of having someone tell their story, which is very relatable for our listeners. So if somebody's out there and they're listening in this morning going, wow, one piece of advice. Well, see if you're working for someone else. And I don't get why people don't do this. Find someone that's 
doing what you want to do and pick their brains, bug them, <laughs> annoy them. It doesn't happen. They don't, you know, you, you speak to people, you, do you want to open your own restaurant? And they go, yeah. And you think, this guy's never asked, or girl's never asked me about anything. You know, if, uh, you know, how do you get money? How do you do this? How would I do that? Don't be I would tell them. I don't be frightened to ask. Pick their brains. Annoy. It doesn't care yeah. if it annoys them. The Penny's just dropping me now. All those times when I'd be sitting at the captain's <laughs> table in twenty nine and try to eat your steak. Say, Susan, oh, here's Michael coming there again. Talk to me. It's really bugging me today. Yeah. <laughs> brilliant, so brilliant story. Thank, thanks so much for coming on. I'm sure the listeners will love that story, Michael. Fantastic. Thank you very much, yeah, guys. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate Thank it. Thank you, Michael. After the break, we go into the boardroom. Where Tom and Willie answer your questions and offer free business advice. If you want to take part, simply email your questions to gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk and if you ever miss an episode, simply subscribe to the Go Radio Business Show podcast. The Go Radio Business Show with Workflow Solutions. Helping your business with document management, print and IT solutions. Go there are lots of things a business needs to help it run efficiently. Document management, printing, IT support, digitization, data security and more. As a true managed service provider, Workflow Solutions can help with these and a wide range of other business needs. Saving time and money for businesses across the UK. Help your workflow with Workflow Solutions, the work from anywhere experts. Visit workflo-solutions.co.uk. The Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey. Welcome back as we go into the boardroom with Hunter and Hockey and answer your calls with free business advice, insight and inspiration. If you want your questions read out in the show or wish to speak directly to Tom and Willie, you can email gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk. So we get an interesting email talking about the BBC, which is trying to lure new recruits with pelleting classes and free bagels on a Monday. And he's saying, what's the most unusual offer you've made to get a recruit in? And more seriously, what ideas do you have to make work more attractive? Tom. <laughs> ah, dear, come to me first, right? Okay, well, <laughs> I, now, I guess being of a certain age, I'm kind of struggling with the whole bit of work for home. And, and my daughter works for an influencer agency in London. So they're young and they're right on it and they're very creative. She doesn't call them influencers, they're called creatives, first of all. That's my first mistake. And I thought that they need to be in the office because they're creative and they're bouncing ideas off each other. And she thinks that as well, but there does seem to be a reluctance and the firm there are saying, if you come in to the office, there'll be a £10 Deliveroo voucher for you for, for your lunch, etc. I, I guess I'm of the old school of saying, get on with your work, <laughs> which I know is old-fashioned, and I know I'm not going to recruit and retain the best talent with that. So we've, we've got to adapt. We've got to say, right, what is it you want to do? But there are some points where, and in the creative industries, they can't be done over Zoom, Donald. Meeting somebody and the off chance, you meet somebody and the off chance, something said, and the sparks that happen from that, I think they're invaluable. And therefore, if I was running 
a very creative business these days, I would be having to say, we need to get back to the office and I would listen to my people and see what it would take to get them back. But luckily, my team have worked together for so long so they can work from wherever they want, frankly. But every week, we need to get together. What about you, Willie? How do we make it more attractive? Well, your first question, Tom, I've had this quirky wee ploy I've used for years and years and years. In fact, since we started, and I've used it with everybody, I just kind of drop a lump of money into their bank account at the end of the month. <laughs> Is that right? It seems to have worked for me, work, you know, like? paying them, I think, and looking after <laughs> them. Two yeah. so old school. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, old school, yeah, come on. But, no, being serious for a moment, I did have a meeting this week with my HR director and one of my operations directors, and they have kind of told me, you know, in certain terms, you know, don't even use the phrase back to norm because that isn't going to happen. So if you're not flexible in your working hours now, if you're not listening to people, you know, they said they made a good point this week. One of the things that we could do with our staff at the moment to help them with the whole cost of living crisis is, is for them to save all their petrol money and coming to work. Right? So that's, you know, to a lot of people, one girl says it's £170, pound, another girl. So I'm all for that. For me, I think that, you know, this is not, take this as red, but some going to be some hybrid, maybe two weeks on, two weeks off, flexible. You know, I would, I've said this before on the show, I would love to have go to a four-day working week, but when you're in the service industry, it's kind of difficult. Now, I'm sure there's a lot of people who work for us where we could do that, but certainly we are technicians where we are working weekends and covering standby and what have you. But it'll be interesting to see what happens over the next few months, but what both, you know, my personnel manager, that's been old school, HR director, and my ops director have made it clear in order to attract talent and to keep the talent we already have that we have to be more flexible and we will certainly be doing that. Yeah, it reminds me of the story when I was running sports division and we were running it out of Scotland, out of Dundonald, the epicentre of commerciality in Europe. Yeah. And... Um, the headhunter were using and say, oh, Tom, I don't know if we can, it's really somebody for London you need. And I said, well, just, just get me in front of them and I'll get them. And all right, okay. So we came up for interviews and I was saying, right, so there was one person I was really keen on, lived in London, high-powered jobs, right? You're good for me. Well, Tom, you know, I, I don't know too much about the company. I don't really want to live in Scotland. So I'll double your wages. And they started. Willie, finally, Jim. <laughs> finally, Donald. We started off the programme by your follow, follow to talk about Seville. <laughs> After the champion week, how's your week been? <laughs> oh, touché, touché. Welcome, welcome to the Go Football Show. <laughs> Thankfully, that's all we've time for. But don't forget, you can put your business questions to Tom and Willie by emailing gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk and you can give us feedback or get involved by visiting thisisgo.co.uk. And if you ever miss an episode, simply search for the Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey wherever you get your podcasts. The Go Radio Business Show with Workflow Solutions. Providing secure archive storage to your business. Go.